You're listening to The Served Up Show, a podcast that features inspiring beverage professionals and topic experts that share their passions through meaningful content. Your hostesses, Bridget Albert, is best known as the Market Fresh Mixologist, an industry mentor with over 25 years of experience. And I'm Julie Milroy, best known for my passion for leading change and helping others grow in their careers. Grab a cocktail and sit back. Let's learn how we can make a positive impact in our industry. Hey, y'all, it's Bridget here. I had the pleasure of chatting with my new friend, Joe Wagner. Joe is the founder of Copper Cane Wines and Provisions, a fifth-generation Napa Valley winemaker. Joe has been immersed in every aspect of the wine industry his entire life, learning the ropes from his dad, Chuck, who co-founded Camus Vineyards with his parents in 1972. Joe learned a great love for cultivating the land, tending the grapevines, the art of winemaking, the strength of a good work ethic, and leading by example. Joe and I share a lot of laughs in this episode as he shares his journey into winemaking. So sit back, relax, grab yourself your favorite copper cane wine, and enjoy this really fun show. Joe, welcome to Served Up. I'm so excited to have you on the show today. Thank you very much for having me. I am uh, excited to tell our story and ask whatever, you know, nitty gritty questions you want to get into. All right. Well, let's let's get into it. Can you tell our listeners really uh, just about your beginnings? Where where did you grow up? Tell me about your past. Did you go to college? How did you wind up in the wine world? All right. Well, I'll, I'll try to make this uh, as succinct as possible, but um, it, it is a bit of a long story. I'll actually go back to before uh, me growing up. So my family immigrated, uh, into Napa where we currently live, uh, back in the 1850s and they started planting grapes, making wine, and they had a pretty good run of it up until prohibition shut them down. Um, you know, at the time they were, you know, grapes were a big part of the economy in the area, very much an agricultural area. Um, and they were selling their wine more in a bulk manner to San Francisco, which was kind of a hustling and bustling city at the time post, uh, gold rush. So uh, they had a good run of it. When they were shut down, uh, they resorted to prunes and walnuts, and they kept on making wine at home and growing some grapes and selling them to other wineries. So uh, they weren't making ends meet in the late 60s. And my grandfather, Charlie Wagner, along with my grandmother, Lorna, and my dad, Chuck, um, they decided they were either going to sell the farm or they were going to try their hand in the wine business once again. And so in 1972, they released their first vintage of Camus Vineyards. Um, and that in itself is its own story. But over the years, they refined what they were doing, um, realized that Cabernet was king in this part of the world and uh, and focused their efforts there. And so, you know, fast forward a couple decades. Um, I was born in 1982 and uh, and, you know, born in Rutherford, very small town. If you blink as you're driving on Highway 29, you'll miss it. Um, and a very rural community, uh, very much an agrarian community which uh, back in those days, you know, tasting rooms weren't a big thing. Wine tourism was just starting to evolve. And I remember the the complete evolution of it from the 80s through to today. Um, and it's really quite an amazing feat to where it, it has come. Um, so, you know, ran around the vineyards when I was younger, uh, about 12 years old. I started working in the vineyards. 
Um, and then uh, about 15 years old, started working in a winery whenever I, I got a chance. It wasn't, it wasn't like an option. It was kind of like, you know, it, it, it was still very much family owned, family operated. And so uh, I, at that time, didn't think that I'd be getting into the wine business. I just knew that it was a job and family needed uh, more workers. And, uh, and so I could get out there and make a little money. And, um, and little did I know I was learning quite a bit during, uh, during those early years. So about 19 years old, um, I actually was going to college. I took a semester off and uh, I moved to, of all places, Mexico in the Sonoran Desert near the city of Hermosillo and uh, started farming table grapes down there. Um, and um, the largest uh, export market for us was here in the U.S., followed by the EU and then Asia. Um, learned a ton about growing grapes in that period of time. And uh, during that that time that I lived down there, um, I realized that I wanted to get back into grapes and wine. And having getting gotten into other industries, I realized how wonderful this industry was. You have agriculture, um, you've got artistry and winemaking, along with uh, chemistry and some industrial aspects like bottling. Um, and then you also have the marketing and sales piece of it, which is you know a whole different ball of wax. But nonetheless. There, there are so many facets to this business that it keeps you busy, especially if you're always, you know, wanting to do something different, try new things, and uh, rather than just sit behind a desk, there's, there's a lot of opportunity for, you know, say somebody with undiagnosed ADHD. So, <laughs> so um, I uh, moved back from Mexico and started working for my dad, and uh, I had planted my first Pinot Noir vineyard when I was uh, 15, actually, with a, another guy. Uh, named Charlie out on the far Sonoma coast. And that was just a summer job working for my dad. And so that was, you know, mid late nineties. And, uh, and so the grapes were coming in for that and they really didn't have a home. We also had some other Pinot Noir from uh, Santa Barbara County, Santa Maria Valley specifically that was coming in and it didn't have a home. And my dad just said, do you want to, you know, try this, try making these wines. And I thought, yeah, sure. I'll, I'll give it a shot. And uh, asked him a ton of questions, tried everything under the sun and eventually created a wine that we felt was, you know, worth bringing to market. And then we started looking at branding and, and creating, you know, it was something that was meaningful to us. And so Bell Gloss was my first uh, start in the, in the wine business as far as a brand. And uh, when I, when I um, began it, you know, it was kind of like, what is something meaningful to the family, something meaningful to our history? And my grandmother, Lorna Bell Gloss, she is a huge inspiration to us. She loved Pinot Noir. And uh, and she uh, she was, I think, very much deserving of having a brand that reflected her passion and her history. So we named it Bell Gloss and uh, started there and began with one vineyard designate in the 2001 vintage. And then uh, started doing a second vineyard designate with 2002 and kind of continued to evolve. And the, the rest is history. We now have, you know, uh, about a half a dozen vineyard designates and created a portfolio that we call Copper Cane Wines and Spirits now. Um, we have really, you know, five main brands and a few other small offshoots. Um, and then, uh, we just delved into spirits as well with, uh, some bourbon, rye, single malt, uh, brandy and apple brandy. So, uh, it's really been a fun run and, you know, it, I, I don't think that it's uh, anywhere near the end of it. Um, we're, we're, you know, growing at a great clip right now. We have the ability and capacity to do that. Um, and, uh, continuing to plant two to 300 acres of vineyard a year continue to invest in our facilities. Um, we have a, a tasting experience in downtown Napa, which is quite a bustling little community now. So, uh, so lots of fun stuff going on, but you know, there's always, you know, the view of what is next. Um, so, uh, so, you know, always keeping an eye on that, but overall 
really happy with where we're at and really happy that people are enjoying the wines and spirits. Yeah, it's such a cool story because I, I love, I mean, it is truly a, a family effort, right? You grew up in this. This is what you know and what you love to do, what you were taught and from your your ancestors. I mean, it's absolutely incredible. Sorry, I, I was actually just thinking that it's a great thing to get into is that in the wine business, it's one of those things you can learn um, without having to get a college degree. We've actually found that when we bring on people on the winemaking team that have a college degree, they oftentimes are, are stuck in a box. They have learned the theory of winemaking and they don't understand that it's a very fluid practice. Um, it's it's not just a job, it's a hobby. I mean, a lot of people make wine in their garage just as a hobby. Once you understand the dynamics of fermentation and basics of grape growing and aging, et cetera, there are so many different ways you can go. I mean, we have you know 14,000 or so different individual wine products on the market in the United States. That's a boatload of options for any consumer out there. And I look at that as, you know, there's there's very few other industries that have that many options for a consumer. The only one I can relate it to is the restaurant industry, where, you know, it's it's an easy, uh, an easy thing to just disregard a brand, whether that's a restaurant or wine. If you say this vintage is not good, I'm not going to go back to this product. If, uh, if your tacos weren't good at a restaurant, I'm not going to go back there. I'm going to try a new one easy to trade out. So consistency is key in both of those worlds. Um, but I think that the the exploration part of it for the consumer is what's so wonderful. You can get into Riojas and find one you like and then start going down that path and trying a whole bunch of Riojas. And then you end up traveling to the Rioja region. And once you're there, you're bound to have a great time because wherever wine is, there seems to be you know a beautiful landscape, great culture of food and music, and good wine. Um, so I think wine tourism is a, is going to become and continue to be a very strong segment of of um, of our industry. Yeah, I mean, I mean, absolutely, right. I mean, look at just in your own backyard, the tourism, yeah. right, has absolutely exploded. And can you talk about how wine has changed? You briefly mentioned it because you've been in the business now for quite some time since you were born, basically, <laughs> been in the the industry. And all the changes that you've really seen um, when it comes to making wine. Can you talk a little bit maybe about the innovation or what has changed and, and what has really stayed the same? Yeah. So, you know, I'll start with kind of the higher level stuff. Um, technology has infiltrated every aspect of our worlds. Um, so in farming as well, uh, we're much more dialed into every single vine, every single block. Um, able to manage those vineyards much more uh, efficiently and at a higher level because of technology and having your smartphone and having it pull up, you know, whatever data it is, you know, where, how's your soil profile looking? Where's your, uh, you know, what's your, your moisture uh, content? How are your vines holding up? Um, you have imaging that tells you, you know, where you're at as far as, you know, are you, are you low on nitrogen in your vineyards? Do you need to plant more cover crop that's nitrogen fixating for the next year? Um, so there's a ton of that stuff and it's also, you know, uh, goes into the winery. Um, as, as far as that piece of it, that's very cool. It, it, you know, all adds up to big changes in quality, I think overall, but when it comes down to the fundamentals of it, you know, when I first started, it was very much a basic practice of, um, you know, you, you grow your grapes, you choose when you're going to pick. And typically that was based off of sugar levels. Um, over time we evolved and I realized that it's not about sugar levels because physiological maturity trumps sugar. Um, and every year is different. Some years you have an easy way of getting sugar accumulation. 
like a light crop and, and heat spikes, but you don't have that hang time that develops all of those characters on the vine and really um, creates the style and, and character of the, the wine. Um, so we started looking at the physiological attributes only. And so we're picking at different levels of sugar every year and every block, not by a large margin, but still, uh, you know, slight variance every year. And that decision is all based on um, lignification of the seeds and the canes themselves. So the, the name are, that we have for our portfolio, Copper Cane Wines and Spirits, is just that. That is one of the, the kind of foundational components of what make our wines the way that they are. And uh, it is that that green succulent tissue that comes out in spring. And then as ripening begins, it goes from green to a pale yellow to eventually a copper color. We want to see that copper color migrate all the way up that cane, which could be 50, 60 inches long. And that tells me that there's a purging of the green in the vine and a purging of the green in the wine. So uh, so that is one fundamental change that began kind of early 2000s. Um, and I saw a lot of that stuff, you know, beginning in table grapes. And then, and then relating it to winemaking, especially with Pinot Noir, because Pinot Noir is so erratic when it comes to crop yields. You can have four tons an acre one year, you can have a half a ton an acre the next year. So how do you keep consistency in, in your style if you're picking based off of one sugar parameter and you have a very different way of ripening um, uh, within those, those seasons? So that's one item. Um, and then the next I'd say is uh, we happened upon this by by accident. Um, we call it cryo extraction. And uh, that, as it sounds, uh, we use freezing methods to extract more deeply into the skins. So uh, many people don't know that um, if you take a red grape and you squeeze it, you're going to get clear juice. So all of your color compounds, your phenolic compounds, those mouthfeel components, those are all trapped in the skins predominantly. So when we first started, it was all about the cold soak. You know, you do a five-day, seven-day, 10-day cold soak, softens up the skins. Well, I was doing a fermentation in, in bins, and our way of cooling them down if the fermentation got too warm was to use dry ice. And dry ice is just carbon dioxide in its solid form. So it has its cooling effect and then dissipates into CO2 gas. So realize that those lots that went out, you know, went, went too high on temperature, got dosed with dry ice, they were so opulent, lush, and rich, and so expressive. And we started looking into how that was how that dry ice was affecting the fruit and and the character of the wine. And we realized that it's rupturing the cell walls within the skins and giving us better access to those phenolic and color compounds so that we can better extract what Mother Nature gave us. And it gives us a fleshier wine, more front weight, more mid palate, um, and uh, and and really allows the wine to show through rather than relying on you know, other winemaking practices like, um, you know, a, a heavy oak, heavy oak profile. So that was a, that was an evolution. We continue to expand. We continue to experiment. Um, I will say one thing for my team, and this kind of goes back to the formal education versus the on the job education. So everybody that works on the winemaking team, um, with the exception of one, uh, nobody came up in, in winemaking. Um, the, uh, that, you know, the, the guy that I rely upon most, his name is John Lopez. Um, he started with me around 2004 and, uh, he actually used to be a juvenile probation officer and he did not like his job. He wanted to get into something new. He started with washing bins, washing barrels, worked his way up. I would invite him in for blending sessions and talk to him about stuff. And he just took a love, uh, to, to the, to the, uh, uh the industry and so as he you know continued on he became an integral part of our 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 uh, our business and so now he is the director of winemaking 
again, no formal training. Um, same thing with, you know, I've gotten, uh, you know, guys that were, were, you know, literally 18 years old and, and they've worked up to be seller masters and they've got families and, and they're just hustling. And, and, um, I trust those guys for, you know, with everything. Um, and so I, I think that, uh, seeing that, um, and, and what I always hope to instill with my team is something that I think my dad instilled with me was, um, you know, never rest on your laurels, always try something new. Uh, there's always more that can be done, uh, meaning you can never have a perfect wine. So, you know, when I when I look at our team that that we have now, I want them to screw up. Um, and and you know, if they don't stick a fermentation once a year or more, then I feel like they're not trying enough. Um, and I think that giving the team that power is is so important to the quality of our wines and the consistency of our wines and the evolution of our wines, because. If you think about it from the perspective of if I was a proprietor and I hired on a winemaker and I didn't know much about winemaking and this winemaker, um, you know, ruined a, you know, uh, a fermentation that cost, you know, $200,000 in fruit, that winemaker might lose his job. Well, in California, it's legal to add water to your must, which I am not a fan of. I think it dilutes the product and it's, it's an easy way to go so that you don't get a stuck fermentation. So I want to always encourage my team to push the limits. If we have 28 bricks uh, coming in, which is relatively high sugar, meaning high alcohol, um, I want to ferment that through. And if we don't make it, then that's all right. Um, as long as we tried and did everything we could. And generally speaking, I mean, I'd say 90 plus percent of the time, it's a, it's a win and it's worth that risk. Um, and so I want, I want our winemaking team to always do that so that we can maintain the, the, the character and style of the wines that we want. Um, so I think that that is one fundamental difference as well for us where, uh, you know, the evolution continues, the experimentation continues and it filters out into the industry, whether we like it or not, if we create something that's proprietary, there's a high likelihood that we have a vendor that we're working with for whatever that is, whether it's dry ice or, you know, a new type of barrel, like a hybrid barrel between American and French oak and how we're toasting it and that sort of thing, because it's, Inherently, you know, the, the salesperson or the person that is representing that product goes out and says, hey, Copper Cane is doing this and they seem to be having success. They bought 10 barrels last year. They're buying 100 barrels this year. Um, maybe you should give it a shot. So secrets are only secrets for like three years in, in this industry. Because <laughs> of that. Um, You're so which, right. <laughs> which, which also puts a requirement upon us to make sure we're continuing to evolve so we can stay ahead of the curve um, and, you know, not just create products that I think people love, but also, you know, lead the industry in some ways. And, uh, and that's something we're, we're very proud of. As you should be very proud of, you know, your, your wines are rated very high. Can we get into, you know, your actual portfolio and would love for the audience to know about the different brands of, you know, the wines that you have with, copper cane and going into the spirits as well, because we do have a lot of um, the cocktail nerds that listen to this yeah, show. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, I'll, I'll start off with the wines. Um, you know, first off, it's, we're about 30 skews right now. Um, and, and of those 30, it's about nine or 10 of them that do about 80% of our business. Sure. Um, so it's a very consolidated portfolio. I don't want to have a hundred SKUs or 300 SKUs and have this mm -hmm. massive book. Um, cause if you, if you have that much stuff, there's no way you can prioritize. 
Um, right. Something's going to fall through the cracks. And so we just want to stay very focused on what we do. We don't want to have any overlap. We want each wine to have a reason for being. Um, and that's kind of how we've evolved the portfolio. So starting with uh, with Belle Gloss, we have you know a number of different single vineyard expressions with Belle Gloss. And the reason for that is, you know, simply Pinot Noir is, I think, the best vehicle to to take, uh, I should say, maybe transcend what what Mother Nature gave us, that terroir, that soil, that climate, that clone, that aspect of the slope, um, that trellising, all that stuff involved. Um, Pinot Noir does best at expressing that. And so when you're seeing the same winemaking philosophy between, say, six different wines, you're truly seeing what Mother Nature gives in 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 each one of those areas. So Belgloss continues to focus on that. We did just release our first Chardonnay um, out of Santa Rita Hills, which we're very excited about. Um, but our, our lead wines within uh, Belgloss are the Clark and Telephone Vineyard from Santa Maria Valley, the um, Dairyman Vineyard from uh, Russian River Valley, the Los Alturas Vineyard from Santa Lucia Highlands. There's about 150 miles between those three. And you really get to explore you know, through the glass what the differences are in each one of these appellations in each one of these individual vineyards. Um, when it comes to uh, our Napa project, uh, starting in 2013, I began um, a, a wine that we call the Napa Valley Quilt. And as the name suggests, it is the patchwork of Napa Valley. We're working in seven of the sub-appellations of Napa Valley to create this, you know, cohesive cult style of Cabernet and, and, you know, making it something that is uh, more, I should say accessible. It's I know it's still not a cheap date, but for a quality Napa Cabernet to retail at fifty dollars or buy the glass at twenty, um, it is it is something that um, has just screamed success because of the level of of quality that's in that bottle at that price point. So we're going to continue to do that. And and personal vendetta of mine here is that you know the egos involved in in Napa Cab, and it's like, oh, I've got this winemaker and this vineyard manager, and I'm going to charge two hundred dollars on my first release. And I'm I'm sitting here thinking like that is not good for the wine industry. We don't need to build those walls of elitism back up. We need to break those walls down further than even Robert Mondavi did for you know all of the decades that he pushed for it, right. and uh, get more people into drinking fine wine. So it, it is a little frustrating, but that was part of well, that was part of the objective was to you know to uh, do the opposite of what Napa is doing right now. <laughs> so <laughs> um, so we with with quilt. Um, which is also, you know, one of the first brand names we've created that people can pronounce first try. Um, <laughs> Wait, let's just stop right there. Thank you for that. <laughs> it's amazing. And yeah, so everybody's like, where do you get your brand names? Um, and, uh, you know, they all have a story, of course. Um, with Quilt, we also have a Chardonnay. It's kind of our biggest, you know, uh, most forward buttery oaky Chardonnay. Um, we got a red blend called Fabric of the Land, our reserve called uh, the the Grace of the Land. And we do a small run of Sauvignon Blanc, or I should say Fumé Blanc. It's got some barrel age and uh, some semillon in it. Um, so that's been a ton of fun. That project has really uh, just you know gone gangbusters um, since we released it. I was really happy with it, and it's still there's no end in sight as far as you know where where it can go. Um, and it it is like 70% on premise um which i think is a, a overly healthy mix in the on premise and you know before i get into the other brands i think i should really explain that philosophy because that was that philosophy of a balance between on and off premises is, is one of the reasons i created copper cane to facilitate mm -hmm. that and to to make sure that we had the opportunity to bring new people or more people into fine wine 
Um, and so in most markets, uh, wherever we can, we have channel pricing, um, as we call it. So, you know, while a bottle of Bell Gloss might go to a retailer at $37 or so wholesale, um, it will go to a restaurant if, uh, if it's being poured by the glass at 20 wholesale. And so that gives the, and we have the same pricing on, on Quilt as an example, but that gives the person in the restaurant, say the wine buyer, um, confidence that they're going to be able to put that glass on the list at 18 or $20. They're going to make money. They're going to have satisfied customers. And they're also going to know that if they see that wine on the shelf somewhere at 50, that that customer is going to still feel like they got value for that by the glass um, at the restaurant. And so they may buy it at retail. They may buy it by the glass. They may buy it at a restaurant for 80 or $90 a bottle. Um, and it really comes down to uh, just getting more exposure for these wines uh, to a broader audience. And so our mix of business is about 50-50 right now. And, and we'll we'll continue to maintain that. Um, I think a big part of that is that it maintains the brand integrity. Uh, you know, back of house, it's a bit of a pain in the ass on the accounting side. Um, but overall, yeah. it is, I think, the right way to build and maintain a brand in the long term. Um, and honestly, it's it's what I consider our biggest marketing expense. You know, everybody thinks like, oh, you're doing print ads, you're doing banner ads online. Mm-hmm all that stuff you know if you equate it all it's you know you're you're talking you know a, a lot of lost revenue for that by the glass placement um and to stay very diligent with that is is very hard for most people to do because once you get on you know the teat of retail um and you're making those higher margins everybody's like well you know screw the on premise let's pull the off on on premise pricing and stick with retail retail and that is the end of or the beginning of the end of a brand and often in, in you know most cases so um, we're we're very focused on that, and uh, and it, it's been doing g- really great for both Quilt and uh, Bell Gloss um, to to have that step up. You know, once you go from yeah. a, a twelve dollar pour, a ten dollar pour, and you hit that twenty, and you're like, oh my god, I taste the value in this. Right, and right. It's human nature, right? We mm-hmm. all want, we're all aspirational. We all want to do better. You go from you know a a you know used Toyota Civic to uh you know a new whatever like mm-hmm. say you know a fancy car a Cadillac or something sure uh, you don't want to go back down um mm-hmm. and it's the same thing with wine it's just uh it's human nature so getting them to step up over and over again um until they find what they love and know that luxury wine is accessible it doesn't need to be 2 300 dollars a bottle um it's <laughs> there's some amazing wines out there at 50 uh, you know up to 100 dollars even down in the 20 dollar price category so um, what we have in our, our kind of $20 price segment is, uh, Bowen and Bowen. And I know, I know, I know I'm talking to a lot of markets that, uh, you guys have a big competitor that we created, uh, called Naomi, mm-hmm. <laughs> but Bowen was our, um, our re-entrance into the tri-county Pinot Noir game. So we built Naomi up. We ended up selling that in about 2015, um, that funded our dreams for Copper Cane, and it really brought balance into the portfolio, balance into my life. Um, and when the non-compete came up in 2019, we launched Bowen. Um, and it is everything that Mayomi used to be. And I hate to say it like that, but you know, things change once it gets into somebody else's hands and there's costumes sure. and all that. And so we looked at it as we have this huge opportunity to bring this, you know, very kind of multi, multi-dimensional. A uh, very diverse flavor profile, textural profile, Pinot Noir, back out to the audience that uh, once loved Mayomi, and uh, and it's been growing great. So Bowen was the first brand we created after the sale of of, the, of Mayomi, and we named it uh, Bowen, meaning the farm, because it was it was a way for us to you know say we're getting back into farming 
we now had the funds to purchase more acreage, to plant more vineyards, to grow sustainably um, and, and be able to manage all of our stuff internally. Um, and so that, that's been my lifelong goal really is to be able to grow everything that we produce. Um, and we're, we're still working towards that. We're getting closer every year. Um, and so, uh, so Bowen is a testament to that. Um, and it's just a, a, you know, knock your socks off $20, you know, retail $12 by the glass. Um, and, uh, and really happy with where that's, where that's at right now. Um, another one of our brands that's been around for quite a while, actually one of the first brands we created under Copper Cane, uh, was the Elowan. So Elowan is a Oregon project. I felt like we had confidence in the coast of California and what we were doing and curiosity just got the best of me. And I thought, let's go to Oregon. Let's see what we can do up there. And taking our grape growing techniques, our winemaking techniques, and applying them to a very traditional mindset of an industry. Oregon is still very much in the the you know wheelhouse of we're the new world Burgundy. Um, we're going to make our wines like Burgundy, and and you know I've always had the belief that if you're trying to emulate another wine region, you're already in, in a losing battle. Um, you know, try to showcase what Mother Nature gave you in your respective region. Um, that's what we did with Bell Gloss uh, from the beginning, and and it it did well for us. And what we were able to create out of Oregon with Elowan was a bit more of a fleshy style of Oregon Pinot. It's still got that beautiful minerality um, and really good brown spice tones, but um, it it is, you know, a copper cane style Pinot Noir. It's got great front and mid palate um, and, uh, and, you know, beautiful balanced acidity on the finish. And I love the flavors. It's actually, you know, of the Pinots, I think my personal favorite food wine, just because of that elevated acidity, it really, it really plays well. Um, and so with, uh, with Elowan, we also produce, um, a Chardonnay and a Rosé and that's going through a package revamp right now. Really excited to bring that out to tell the story of what the brand name means. Um, so Elowan means good light. It was an old Breton word. Um, and, uh, or like, like a form of old English, I suppose to simplify it. Um, and, and so it was actually a, it was actually a baby name that I found over the years in one of those baby name books. And it always stuck with me. I just thought it was a very beautiful, very feminine name. And mm-hmm. I wanted to um, actually name one of my kids that, uh, but I've, I already had two girls and I've got two girls and four boys. And so oh we my never goodness, <laughs> I know I'm, I'm getting ready for the next generation here. Um, yeah, you are. <laughs> and, uh, and so Elowan, you know, I went back to it and I was like, you know, well, what is the difference between what we're doing in California and what we're doing in Oregon? And it really came down to um, growing degree days and sunlight hours. You have lower growing degree days in Oregon than where we grow Pinot Noir in California. You have more sunlight hours in Oregon than what we have in California. So it was really about how the grapes are ripening. And they really do predominantly ripen through photosynthesis. Whereas in California, we always have these dry heat spikes, uh, especially towards the end of the season, where we get a little dehydration, a little desiccation, and kind of adds that rich aroundness. And, and it's a style on its own, you know. But um, in Oregon, you don't have that. You have this vibrancy that that comes through, and it's all because of of the coolness paired with the amount of sunlight they have. So, to the extent of you know, at at the longest day of the year, summer solstice, it it has about forty five minutes more of sunlight um, than our most southern growing region. Compound that over days and and weeks and months, and you have a profound impact on the way the grapes are ripening and the style of the wine. And so, Elowan meaning good light. Um, was uh, the name name we gave it, and uh, and the package that's coming out um, is a depiction of those rolling coastal hills with rays of sun coming out from behind them, and I think it's a very impactful, beautiful uh, package, and and does help tell the story. So very excited about that. Probably um, maybe two three months before we get that out in the market now. Okay, 
So like end of summer? Uh, yeah, early fall, maybe somewhere in there. And, uh, you know, there, there, there are a few other brands we do just, you know, at our tasting room, uh, like Kita Building One. Um, but there is a new brand launch that we're doing. Uh, I actually just did. And it's been doing very well out there just on its first release and kind of started off as, you know, we wanted a stepping stone for the Napa Valley quilt because mm-hmm. we can't make a cab at 20 bucks that the level of quality we're doing. So we came out with a, a, a new brand called Thread Count. It's Thread Count by Quilt. Um, we started off with a red blend and uh, and it's, a, it's a, a wine that satisfies a very broad array of palettes. So this was the first time that we as a, a winemaking team actually went outside of our own little, you know, microcosm where, where, you know, we all kind of like have an agreement on our palates and whatnot. At this point, the house palette thing is real. Um, and so uh, so we we went out and uh, we gathered, you know, like 20, 25 people um, from within the company, all age ranges, all levels of, of wine experience, people that don't drink wine. They're still on White Claw. They're 22 working in marketing, too a 60 year old who is an avid lover of fine wine and, and, you know, looking for the geekiest stuff you can find out there. And so we got everybody in a room. We took um, our bench blends. Um, so let's call it like first run of about, about five bench blends. And then also had the 10 top red blends in that price category. Everything was blind. And we just said, okay, we want to know what everybody, what everybody likes. We ranked them and did this a, a series of times as we were refining those five blends that we were producing or making until we got to a point where everybody from the white claw drinker to the experienced uh, uh, wine lover, um, everybody put it in their top two or three. So one, two or three placements. And that's what drove the blend decision. And a big reason for that was that, you know, we felt like there is a miss for getting the younger generation into drinking fine wine. And you know, how, how do we do that? And, and, you know, get that white cloud drinker to, you know, when they're going out to dinner, have something a little bit classier, a little bit elevated, and then get them to get, you know, in, into fine wine and move up and down the ladder there. So thread count um, has been doing just that. And, uh, and it's, it's, you know, hit the market and really happy with how that's gone. We're, we're going to be coming out with a Paso Robles Cabernet for that as well. And also a Sauv Blanc in the next year. So, uh, so lots of exciting stuff. Those are kind of the core brands, I guess the five core brands that we have on the wine side right now. Um, and, uh, not planning on, on doing a whole lot more, uh, of, of brand development. I think we got a pretty well filled out portfolio, but we do have, uh, two other projects coming up in the next six to 12 months. Um, but we've also turned our focus onto spirits. Um, we, yeah, let's we... talk about that too. I love, by the way, you know, how you've made wine so accessible. Because I think a lot of the consumers, whether you're in a liquor store or even if you're at the local bar, it can be very intimidating, right? Uh, you know, to look at the menu, to look at the selection, to know what's good. And so, you know, to really to be able as a producer to make those wines that are delicious, that are exquisite, accessible is incredible. Well, well, thank you. And, and, uh, it doesn't come without some hate. I will tell you that. So oh, no. <laughs> and, and, you know, at, in the beginning it was, you know, of course it's like hurtful when you're getting criticized and, and then you realize, well, everybody's different. And yeah, you know, there, there are some very geeky Psalms out there who think that what we do is atrocious and that's totally fine with me because I don't like, you know, drinking, you know, whatever, 
obscure white varietal from some corner of Europe that I've never heard of for an over, you know, overly priced. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I uh, agree with you. Yeah. I agree with you a hundred percent. And then what you're doing is like you said, you know, for those who are curious about wine, really yeah. giving them um, that roadmap on where to start and then what to try next and really getting them interested in the entire category. So you really are doing a, a service um, to wine itself. Well, we, we hope so. We'll keep on trying and evolving. And, uh, you know, as, as a side note, um, we recently got into social media, um, which is, you know, it, I, I, I'm generally a private person. COVID kind of changed that just out of necessity. Um, we started doing live streams like three a day. Um, we were doing wine dinners. We were looking at like a hundred people's dining rooms, you know, while they're enjoying our, I mean, it was what a weird time. Right. Um, but, uh, but through that, I realized that there, there was a, a very powerful um, opportunity for us, not just as Copper Cane, but as an industry where we don't have a lot of uh, individuals that are really in, involved anymore. You know, you might have winemakers, but from an ownership standpoint, um, number one, you, you have to, you know, be involved in everything, but then also be willing to put yourself out there. And that tie of a product to a person now is more important than ever. Um, the consumers are looking for that. And, uh, and so I, I realized, you know, okay, I've got to kind of change my MO and get a little more comfortable with this. And I got comfortable through COVID. And then um, our social media director, she asked me, you know, like, well, we're on Instagram. What do you think about getting onto TikTok? And I was like, not going to get on TikTok. Like that's, that's dancing kids and whatever else. Right. And so, um, she started showing me stuff and she's like, it's becoming a little more educational and there's nobody in the wine space on here. Uh, you know, and I think that you can do well. And I was like, I'll give it a shot. We'll give it six months. And I give her an hour of my time once a week. She's got a list of stuff to shoot. She edits it all. And we try to mix in entertainment and education together. And it, it turned out to be a great blend. Um, and we've gotten great feedback. We've also gotten, you know, some naysayers and whatnot, but generally speaking, we get, um, a lot of great feedback uh, from consumers, young and old, uh, getting kids, you know, in their early 20s excited about wine, you know, comments like, I never thought I'd want to drink wine. But now that I'm hearing this stuff, I'm, I'm really excited to try my first bottle. And so we really hope that, you know, we're, we're giving uh, like free lessons to other uh, winery owners. And, and even if it's just a social media director, like I call it a character for a winery a spokesperson for a winery, um, we'll bring them in and tell them what our strategy is and encourage them to get online so that there's more voices out there. Absolutely. Because I think it's an industry issue that we're, you know, we're a pretty dusty old, uh, you know, marketing uh, type of industry. And if we can do something to affect change there and get people mm -hmm. excited about it, then I think, I think the whole industry will continue to continue to thrive. Yeah. And not just that. I mean, think about, you know, something that you said earlier was, and, you know, wine really brings together like community, right? And it's um, a lot about culture and about food and about friendship. And, you know, it's so communal. It really is. It is and so if you can share product. that with the next generation and like, hey, yeah, it's not just flipping open a tab of, I'm not going to say the, the schmice schmall, you know, what you said, <laughs> but, but it's something just a little, little more special than that. Right. It It is. And it goes, I mean, I would say that uh, wine 
by and large is the best beverage for food pairing. You know, everybody mm-hmm. thinks like tacos need a Pacifico or a Corona. I think that tacos, like, you know, if I'm doing carne asada street tacos, it tastes great with, you know, a chilled, I know people are going to hate this comment, but a chilled bottle of Elawan Pinot. <laughs> and and it's it's just like the the pairings are limitless. And really, as you said, everybody, you're sitting around a table, you're having a great time, you know, you're you're enjoying good food, good company and good ambiance, all that stuff. Wine is a part of it. And mm-hmm. you don't really have a bad experience with wine. Wine is wine is part of our culture has been part of our, our human culture for, you know, centuries, if not millenniums. Um, but, uh, but it is something that brings people together. There's not a lot of products to do that. And the industry itself is very insulated in the sense of, of having just a, a large group of good people. And I think it's one of the things I love about it. And it's at every level of the industry, vineyard, winery, distribution, and retail mm-hmm. and restaurant, right? Where if you're a bad operator and you cross somebody the wrong way, People are quick to just say, oh, we're just going to stop working with you. And, uh, and, and those people find their way out of the industry pretty quick. I've seen it happen time and time again. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, it's kind of like, fuck around and find out. Yeah, um, yeah, and, you're right. No, you're 100% and, and so, right. And so we're all in this together and we're all watching mm-hmm. out for each other. And, you know, my destemmer goes down. I can call somebody up and they'll be like, oh, yeah, you can borrow it tonight. I'll bring it over. Um, so it's a, it's a great industry at, at all levels. Um, and, uh, and I think it'll continue to be that way because at the end of the day, we're all getting together for a glass of wine over, a, over a meal. That's, you know, <laughs> amen to that. Yes, you were right. And so how do you, let's talk about how do you then make that jump into spirits? How did that happen? It's um, terribly exciting. So talk to me about that. Yeah, it, this kind of, uh, this one kind of just started off a little awkward. Um, <laughs> So I'm going to go back to like 2013. We at the, at the Dairyman Vineyard over in Russian River. Um, there's an old dairy there, which you know the property used to be a, a functioning dairy. So we wanted to turn that into a winery, and but we didn't want it just to be about wine. So we wanted to take the components of Sonoma's agricultural history, which are grapes and wine, uh, apples, and um, a creamery or dairy. So. Um, we had this whole design and uh, we had some issues with access into the property and, you know, bike trail and whatever else. So it never got off the ground. But during that like two year period where we were developing this project, um, I was like, well, I, I know for the apple thing, I don't want to do apple cider and we're not going to make like applesauce. Um, so and I've always loved Calvados. And so I thought, let's start making apple brandy. And we had a friend out in Modesto and he had a, a distillery that he had just started. And so we um, we started working with some old, you know, old orchards here in Russian River um, with Gravenstein and uh, and and uh, Golden Delicious Apples were the two we started with. And uh, we picked them, brought them to the winery, pressed them in our wine presses, fermented them with champagne yeast, uh, you know, did everything like we were making wine. We actually went through ML fermentation, which it is a bitch to get apple cider through ML fermentation. Like I was very surprised. <laughs> I bet. But, you know, like there's a there's. A, a boatload of malic acid in, uh, mm-hmm. in, in uh, apples. Anyway, so we, we got it through and then we brought it to the distillery and had him do his, the first year was contract work. And so, um, so he did that and uh, we loved it. We were like, all right, let's, let's keep going with this. And, you know, he was running on a shoestring. And, um, and so we decided we'd invest into the facility and actually purchase the property. And he was, you know, he was managing his spirits, but also now our spirits. 
And as we, as we started to get into it, and once we started putting other stills in there, it was like, well, let's, uh, let's send some wine over, make some brandy along with the apple brandy. And then we started growing our own corn and rye and uh, making our own mash bills and, uh, and making bourbon and rye. Um, and, uh, and then we began to uh, play with single malts. Um, not like your traditional single malts. I'd say they're like somewhere between like the, the Japanese and, and more of a traditional single malt. They're not overly smoky. Um, mm-hmm. but, uh, that's the only thing we don't grow is the, uh, the, the, uh, uh, barley for, uh, the single malts. So, um, that is something we buy from Admiral Maltings and, uh, and we have a, a number of expressions, but we only have one out currently. Um, so most of the spirits are aged, um, about five years. Some of them are four or one of them is four. Everything else is five plus. So we have, um, an apple brandy, which kind of started the whole thing. Uh, we call that Bishop's Eden. Um, and, uh, that, uh, that is, I mean, it, it's, it's a very expressive, very rich style. Um, that is all in French Oak. Um, and then we have our bourbon and rye and the brand for that is called Griffin and grain. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll kind of give you an overarching idea as to the, the brand names and whatnot in a moment. Um, and so, uh, we're using Merced rye, which is a native rye. Um, and then we're using, uh, uh winter wheat and then two row barley on that. And then we've got um, our bourbon, um, which is uh, red corn, uh, two-row barley, and uh, winter wheat as well. Um, and then uh, the single malt, which uh, we call Isla Khalifa. And that is uh, cherry wood currently. And we have a number of other expressions like Maiden Voyage um, at Gallagher's Best, a number of uh, ones that were developed here locally. And then our uh, our brandy itself is called Avre. And Avre is... Um, finished in bell gloss Pinot noir barrels and it's uh it's a it's quite a rich style of brandy i think brandy is going to be the next big thing here in the states i mean as brown spirits are going to continue to grow yeah you know i I agree with you on that um just with the growth of cognac itself the more awareness just outside of the larger brands you know it's really getting into um and you mentioned calvados as well calvados is one of my personal favorites i've had the the opportunity to go to normandy and explore with distillers out there and it was absolutely fascinating so i think it's so cool what you're doing for these categories it's awesome i mean i'm i cannot wait until there's a few more producers making you know higher-end brandies and apple brandies because they're they're you know you taste them next to bourbon and rye and you know it's just a little bit of a, a fresher fruitier vibe but you still get yes. all those tones of, of oak that people love and um mm-hmm. and I think it's 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 going to have its day um you know it used to be the you know our grandparents drink right um so, yeah yeah and what's I, old and new again so I think we're gonna get back into it so yeah very very exciting so um. Let's see. Uh, I'm trying to think of what else. Oh, the the brand names themselves. So they all sound a little bit odd, you know. But but really, the story of it is that um, everything is grown here in California. Everything is produced here in California. We're very much a craft distiller, um, and uh, and so when I was thinking about California, I was like, well, you know, the history of California is something that a lot of people don't really know the details about. Like, where did the name come from? And uh, that's that's a great story in itself. And and maybe I'll preface it by saying that when I was in my early 20s, um, I was told to start collecting something, <laughs> you know, just as like a hobby, like some some older guy was like, start a collection of something that means something to you now. And, you know, in 50 years, you're going to look back 
and be like, God, I'm really glad I was inspired by this when I was like 23. Mm-hmm. And and now look at what I have. And so I started um collecting California maps. And uh and and that was just it actually turned into kind of like how the establishment of the Western United States went through maps. So you kind of see from just barren land over to you know what we have today. Um, one of the most fascinating maps was that California was depicted as an island. And that was a cartography mistake back in like the 1400s, 1500s, um, but it lasted for over 200 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what, so, so going kind of deeper into that story, um, there was an, a fictional novel in the late 1400s called Las Sergas de Esplandian. The name doesn't really matter, but the, the point of the story is that there was a fictional character in that story named uh, Queen Calafia. And she had an army of female warriors and an army of 500 griffins. She lived in this terrestrial paradise that had shores of gold and pearls. Um, and uh, they were you know, laden in gold and, and whatever else. So uh, it was a very popular novel for, for um, Spain uh, during those years. And during those years, Spain was exploring the west coast of uh, North America and mapping it out. And so they they thought that they had found this island, like this Garden of Eden Island, which was the Baja Peninsula. And so they named it Isla California, Isla de California, after the Queen Calafia. And so that's that's where it got its first name. And so on these old maps, you'll see that it says Isla de California on it. It's actually the oldest state name that that in the nation uh, because of that. And so I was looking at that. I was like, we're all California grown, produced and everything. This is our home. How do we kind of tell that story through the brands? And so that's kind of where Griffin and Grain comes in. Um, and uh, and Isla Khalifa itself is kind of a hybridized version of the Isla de California. Um, and, uh, and and Bishop's Eden, uh, kind of a, a play on, you know, the Garden of Eden, Bishop being the overseer. Um, and so it's they all have kind of this this tie in together. Um, that really does go back into the history of California and how it got its name. I love that. I want to have you back on just to talk about your maps. <laughs> <laughs> I think I have like troll dolls. <laughs> like when I collected when I was a kid, nothing as interesting as what you just said. I had no idea. And I bet a lot of our listeners are probably really surprised to hear where the name of California came from. It's incredibly cool. And then how you tie that back in, right? I think it seems to me like you have that that really cool um, spirit about yourself, Joe, that really is tied into your family, into your heritage, and always paying homage to. Well, thank you. It, it is something that we we really do try to maintain. I don't want to just you know put products out there that just have a cool name that some think tank came up with. Um, everything needs to have meaning. It all has to have purpose. And uh, once you once you get something like the product is made and you feel good about it, what does it mean to you? What does it mean to the community? And and then you start thinking about what you know what the name is and what the storyline of it is. And um, I think it's a much more organic way to go. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I do hope people appreciate it. I know that it's a little more complicated. It's a little harder to let that story like resonate and, and be, be easily accessible to most people out there. Cause there's so many stories anyways. Yeah. So, um, but you know, I, I think that, that at, at minimum there's the, you know, the genuine nature of it. And, um, there's also the, you know, ownability of it that we, we can really, you know, own that story and we can, we can go ahead and tell it and, 
Um, as long as people understand that it's genuine and they don't recall the details, um, that's fine with me. Just as long as, uh, as long as our expression of the genuine nature of it comes through. Yeah. I think that you're doing a great job. Well, thank that. you. Really I'll keep do. trying to not fuck it up. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's, yeah, well, I think that's what we're all trying to do every yeah. day. So. <laughs> so that's why whenever we have, we're still a pretty small company. And so whenever we have a, a new employee come in, we do a look like a little lunch uh, for them and we kind of grill them and roast them all at the same time. Um, it's kind of an HR nightmare, but you know, our HR team is pretty cool. Um, so, so uh, my, my one line to every single one of them is the job is really easy as long as you don't fuck up. <laughs> and, uh, and it's, it's funny. I mean, we, we, we like, uh, we like mistakes just as much as we like successes. He's learned from them, but, um, it's become kind of one of the, one of the joking mantras of, uh, of the company. <laughs> well, it should be on a shirt and sold. Yeah. <laughs> your tasting copper, room. copper cane wine and spirits. Don't yes. fuck this up. <laughs> That's right. I would buy one. <laughs> That's fun. <laughs> you know, so can you, can you, can you leave our listeners with just some advice? I think you, you'll have a lot of folks listening today that are new, maybe to the wine industry really admiring your story here. Can you leave them with just a little bit of advice as they jump into, you know, into a wine career, whether it be um, even working in a liquor store and learning about wine, maybe they have aspirations to own their own winery. Maybe they're just, you know, behind the bar, pouring the wine. What advice can you give to them about the category and really jumping into that passion? So it, I, you know, that's a great question. There's so many things that I'm thinking about, but um, I'll, I'll take it piece by piece. I'm, I'm thinking that if, you know, if you're going to be in the sales part of wine, um, there are so many different avenues you can go and just find the place that you feel most comfortable. Is it on-premise? Is, is it off-premise? Is it back of house? Um, are you wanting to deal with customers directly in a retail store? Do you want to be a sommelier? All that stuff. But I, I think, you know, and, and trying them all and figuring out what you love the most, what you do best at, um, and what fulfills, you know, your, your needs. Um, but then also keeping an open mind and, and, and understanding that there are so many different palette preferences out there. And if you're being singular with, um, with what wines you put on a list or that you're pushing out there, uh, it, it's, it's a disservice to the industry, I think. And so mm-hmm. understanding that if somebody walks into a store and says, I like this type of Chardonnay, like, I want the biggest butteriest oaky, you know, uh, Chardonnay you got. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and if you're, you're like, okay, well, I prefer Chablis. I think you should try Chablis. Um, and there's, there are a lot of Psalms out there and, and that are always trying to divert people to what the Psalm wants them to drink rather than what the people want to drink. And so better understanding of what the customer themselves wants. And that's, that, that holds true for the uh, restaurant. Uh, uh, if you're in a restaurant, if you're in a retail store, um, also if you're in, you know, uh, if you're selling into a retail store or a restaurant, letting them know, like if there's a geeky Psalm, that's got a lot of esoteric stuff, you got to, you know, pitch it as you need some also, also mainstream stuff. You're missing out on, you know, a, a big part of your clientele that knows exactly what they want. They want the reliable, you know, um, the reliable regions or the reliable varietals. So I think that those are some of the things is just keeping balance with, uh, with everything. Um, so I, I give that advice. Um, and then when it comes to all of it, I would just say, try, I mean, 
I've seen people that are hampered uh, by overthinking, right? So, uh, and that that goes in everything. You you take all of the elements of what you're thinking about. If it's a business idea, um, say you want to, you do maybe want to start making wine. You know, it's it's just do it. Like the old ad is like Nike's, just do it. <laughs> and uh, and and what I've seen is that people will overthink and overthink and assess and analyze, and then their opportunity is passed. And then there's they, they they miss the boat, and then it's on to the next one. So I mean, if you were to put a percentage on it, I'd say if you feel fifty percent good, like analytically about what you're wanting to do, and then you got a good gut feel, that's a pretty good start. So uh, so fifty, sixty percent, and a good gut feel, I'd jump in with both feet, take the risk. Um, you'll learn no matter what, but uh, but if you don't try, it's never going to happen. Um, so when it comes to winemaking, I think a big part of it is. And I encourage people to do this all the time. They, they, you know, a lot of people think it's a very complicated thing. You can go online and buy your first winemaking kit. You know, it may be Chardonnay concentrate and you know a little, you know, carboy and whatever other tools you need, just to start a fermentation. And you may ruin that wine. It may taste like vinegar, or it may be something good. But you try it once, you get more and more involved in it, and then eventually you'll have a wine that's good, and then you can ramp up from there. I think, you know, one of my favorite stories is the Costa Brown story. Those were two guys that they were servers in a restaurant and they were like, you know, we love wine. We want to try and make it. They made some wine in their garage. I think they bonded their garage so they could actually legally make wine there. Started off with a couple barrels, got some good scores. Their wines were just fucking awesome, honestly. Like those were some of my more inspiring wines in in the late 90s when I started tasting Pinot. Um, or their vintages from the late nineties. And, um, and they're really one of the OGs of California Pinot as far as I'm concerned. So, you know, they eventually realized, wow, we've got an actual business on our hands and they grew and, you know, they eventually sold, uh, they, they have started their own projects respectively, but, uh, they eventually sold and, you know, say the estimate there was, you know, these two guys that were just servers and, you know, post-college making a, you know, fine amount of money, but, but not lighting the world on fire. And then they sell a brand for like $40 million because they just followed a passion. They tried it and, uh, and they got into it and they're still doing what they love to this day. Um, so, you know, I think it comes down to that, just trying even at the smallest scale um, and, uh, and, and, you know, learning through the process and not giving up on it. I mean, if you, if you absolutely hate winemaking, then, uh, you know, try it once and then just say, I'm not, not my thing, but, uh, but it's always worth a try. Well, Joe, on that note, I want to thank you for coming on Served Up. And I would love to have you back again. Absolutely. I you know? yeah, would love to. I, you're an awesome guest. And I just I want to wish you just some great health and a lot of peace, man. So thank you for being on the show. Well, likewise, thank you for having me. And uh, I don't know, maybe if you're open to it, we'll have you on uh, our podcast at some point. So um, it's called Go With Your Palate. Uh, I, I've got to plug it in there. We haven't actually publicized it yet, but I think we got maybe a dozen, dozen uh, things we go into. It's it's about wine, also entrepreneurship, and we and then we call it whatever the fuck else. So <laughs> I would love, hey, have me on. We can have some other conversations for sure. I think exactly. we're gonna be good let's, let's get into the whatever the fuck else and have some fun. Well, whatever well, thank the fuck you so else, much. man. Yeah. I'm in. I'm here for it. <laughs> thank you so much, Joe. Cheers to you, man. Cheers. Have a great day. Thanks for listening. Served Up is brought to you by Southern Glazers Wine and Spirits. Produced by Zunu.online. Music 
by We Kill the Lion can be found on Spotify. Make sure to subscribe to be notified of future served up episodes. Cheers. <laughs>